0: Almighty God, we do thank you for the gift of your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light to our paths, and strength to our lives. Please give us faith today to receive your word, understanding to know what it means, and the will to put it into practice. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger but israel does not know my people do not understand woe to the sinful nation a people whose guilt is great a brood of evil doers children given to corruption they have forsaken the lord they have spurned the holy one of israel and turned their backs on him why should you be beaten any more why do you persist in rebellion your whole head is injured your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices... What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons sabbaths and convocations I cannot bear your worthless assemblies your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being they have become a burden to me I am weary of bearing them when you spread out your hands in prayer I hide my eyes from you even when you offer many prayers I am not listening your hands are full of blood Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes, And avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice. Her penitent ones with righteousness, but rebels and sinners, will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder, and his work a spark. Both will burn together, with no one to quench the fire. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come! Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord.
1: Well, the famous Scottish poet Robert Burns uh, wrote a poem about mice and he wrote this. Uh, I have to read it in Scottish because it's written in Scottish. The best lead schemes are mason men, gang after glare. Now, no idea what that means, except Google tells me that it is the well-known phrase, the proverb, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Often go awry. And maybe you experience that. Uh, It happens to me all the time. I planned to get up early this morning and finish writing this sermon, uh, but fell asleep reading to the boys last night and sort of in my stupor in the middle of the night waking up, forgot to set my alarm. Um, uh, We all know it, right? (laughs) We all know that our best laid plans often go awry. Uh, um, And this year, especially, has been brought into sharper focus, right? Sharper focus than ever. Uh, Our plans are so unstable. But the good news is, friends, that there is one who uh, does not slumber or sleep. (laughs) He does not slumber or sleep, who isn't thrown out by any virus or political instability and whose plans never fail. Well, the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is this plan of God unfolded before us. It unfolds this plan of the one true and living God, and it does it in this beautiful and unique and wonderful way. Uh, Isaiah is set in a particular time and place. You see it there in verse 1. It's a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem, uh, and it's given over about 60 years during the reign of these four kings. Uh, at this point in history, God's Old Testament people, the Jews, uh, were split into two kingdoms. So you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and uh, Jerusalem was the capital city of Judah in the south. Uh, but this vision, as you read on uh, in Isaiah, you, you see that this vision ends up encompassing not just one place, but every place. Uh, and you even get a hint of that here in verse 2, as Isaiah cries out his vision to these people, He cries it out, but not just to them. He calls the whole cosmos to listen in. Hear me, you heavens, listen, O earth. So we're going to see as Isaiah's vision goes on, uh, that it gathers up not just one place, but every place, the whole creation. And even not just one time, uh, but all of time. It reaches right to the end of time. So this this massive vision. And that means that what we're looking at, this term in Isaiah, I mean, it's an ancient document, right? It's an ancient um, uh, text written thousands of years ago in a culture uh, that's really foreign to us, not in our language, um, in a place that most of us never will go to. Uh, But what's written here is directly, critically important for you. Whatever you think of it, however you receive it, it's going to affect you. And everyone you've ever known and ever will know. When God inspired Isaiah to write these words down, he had all people and all places in mind throughout all of time. And that means he had you in mind. So let's listen up as Isaiah's vision unfolds before us. So Isaiah cries out, hear me, listen, O earth. Why? For the Lord Yahweh, the Lord has spoken. Well, what has He spoken? What is this grand plan that he, he unfolds before us? Well, we're going to see in this passage that He has three. There's three really key elements of it. Um, there's more than that that come out, but we're going to focus in on three. This passage is it's like an introduction to the whole book, and the things that we see in here get repeated and picked up and expanded on throughout the whole vision. Of Isaiah, but there's three major ones. Uh, firstly, this plan is—it's a, a plan that's focused in on this one city, on Jerusalem, uh, also called Zion through through um, Isaiah. It, it's focused in a city, and it's a plan that is in that involves judgment. It's focused in on one city, but it's a plan that involves judgment, and we'll see that uh, as well. But thirdly, it's a plan that leads to an incredible, stunning transformation it's a it's a it's a transformation plan uh, so those three big things will guide us through today but firstly it, it's this plan for one city for Jerusalem uh, in the old testament the city of Jerusalem was like the focal point of god's great promises uh, right back with abraham he had made these great promises uh, that that through abraham's family uh, he would make a great nation and he would plant them in this land and and not only that he the, the promise was huge through them Uh, God would bring his blessing to all the nations of the earth. The whole world would be blessed through them. Uh, He would even undo the curse of sin and death through this people. And you fast forward a few hundred years and Abraham's family has become the nation of Israel uh, and they settled in the land here. Uh, And God's promise gets focused in on the city, Jerusalem, and especially on its temple that was right at the heart of the city. Israel, Jerusalem, its temple was meant to be a light to the world, the bearers of the promise of God. Uh, From verse 2 there, you see who they were. They were God's children, brought up by Him. He called them and cared for them, gave them His good word, set them apart from the world so they could bring His blessing to the world. But instead, what's the reality? As you read into verse 2 there, well, God says, They have rebelled against me. And he uses this image of farm animals. Um, If you have pets, perhaps you'll know something about this. Our dog Molly is totally tuned in in to me, especially, but to all of us, but especially to me. And uh, she's usually, she's not here now, but she's usually lying down right here whenever I'm recording something. Uh, She's like my little shadow. All I have to do is say the W word, walking, and uh, she comes running uh, and uh, sits down with eagerness in her eyes. Uh, it'd It'd be totally unthinkable, right? Totally unthinkable for Molly to forget me, like it just wouldn't happen. Um, Now, God's people are not his animals, (laughs) they are his children. And if it's unthinkable that Molly would forget me, or that an ox would forget its master or a donkey, its, uh, its owner's manger, if that's unthinkable, how much more unthinkable is it that God's children would forget him? But that's exactly what's happened. That's exactly what they've done. In verse 4, you read on, They're a sinful nation whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. This is strong stuff, right? They've, They've forsaken the Lord, their Father, the Holy One of Israel. Jump down to verse 10, and it's like the camera zooms in on what their rebellion looked like. And this is where it gets a bit unsettling. See, it's not as if their rebellion was particularly obvious. Uh, it's, it seems like they're more... Remember Jesus' story of the, um, of the prodigal son. Uh, and you've got the prodigal son, but the older brother who stays at home. It seems that like they're more like the older brother, doing all the right things, performing all the sacrifices, but with a heart that is far from their father. Uh, they, the picture you get here is of people who are religious hypocrites, And God just slams it in verse 13. He says, "...stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being." Man, that's pretty full on. But it it keeps going, Um, if you keep reading. Even their prayers are worthless. God says in verse 15, He's just not listening. They're holding up their hands in prayer. They're spreading out their hands. But there's this strong image of these hands that are held up or spread out to God for prayer, but actually covered in blood. They've got blood on their hands. They're going about their religious activities, but not out of a genuine heart of thankfulness to God. It's just a meaningless and outward sham, an attempt to manipulate God or maybe even just to look good in front of others. And all the while there's blood on their hands, they're causing misery and even death to the people around them. Especially, did you see that in verse 17, especially to those who are disadvantaged in in their community. What should they have been doing? Seeking justice defending the oppressed, taking up the cause of the the fatherless, pleading the case of the widow. So it's not a a pretty picture, right, of this city that God has a plan for. Uh, It's a city that had such a bright purpose, but has become so corrupt, so dark. Uh, And so as God's plan continues to get unfolded here, we see it's not only a plan focused in on this city, it's a plan that involves judgment. It's a plan involving judgment. Back in verse 5, you see this from verse 5 to 9. You start to see this judgment played out. All of this rebellion of this people has left them injured, afflicted, desolate. And you can kind of sense Isaiah's grief here. It's senseless for them to continue in their rebellion. But they just persist. They keep doing it anyway. And and by the end of chapter 1, God's hand of judgment is heavy on them. On, especially on Jerusalem, verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She who was once full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are, are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. The unthinkable thing of of God's children now becoming his foes because of their rebellion against him is sort of pictured here. And it's such a, I mean, it's full on, right? Uh, And as we we read through Isaiah, it just keeps hitting us in the face, uh, especially through the first half, where God's judgment is going to be a theme that comes up again and again. We're going to really focus in on it next week as we look at the next few chapters. God is the Holy One. Back in verse four, did you notice that as we read through, He is the Holy One, and our sin, our self-focused pride, and our rejection of God, our turning away from Him—it's—it's it's not just self-destructive. It is that. Uh, it never—it promises lots, but it never delivers life. It only brings death. It's but our sin's not just self-destruction, and, and it's not even just hurtful to other people around us. It is that, and you see that in this passage especially. But what we also see here is that our sin ultimately is an offence against the holiness and justice of God that will fall under His good and righteous judgment. And seeing that and accepting it is actually a key to seeing this great plan of God that Isaiah is laying out before us. See, friends, God is the Holy One. And again, in a few weeks, we're going to focus in especially on that in chapter 6. But you see what we see here as well. He's not only the Holy One. Back in verse 4, He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the Holy One who chose a people and entered into a relationship with them based on His love and His promises to rescue and redeem, not just them, but through them, the whole world and so it's just at this point where we're confronted with the holiness of God and the sin of his people and the judgment that comes as a result of that just at this point when we expect the hammer to fall finally and terribly just uh, when the storm clouds are gathering overhead you picture this this chapter 1's like this brooding storm all through this passage uh, at key moments through it you you get these brilliant Unexpected bright shafts of light, so these rays of light that break through the darkness and that give us hope. Alongside judgment there is mercy. Uh, Alongside wrath there is grace and God has this plan that's focused in on this city that involves judgment but it also leads to an incredible, wonderful transformation. Uh, and you, the, the people themselves are transformed. You see that in verse 18. God invites his people. He says, Come now, let us settle the matter together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Sin leaves a stain. Friends, sin leaves a stain. I have a bit of a knack of getting a stain on any light-coloured shirt that I happen to get. So if you get me a light-coloured shirt for Christmas, um, chances are by Boxing Day I'll have some kind of spaghetti stain or something on it. Apologies for that. Uh, I can get rid of those stains. (laughs) I can get rid of them. Uh, But uh, the stain of sin is so all-covering and so deep that we can never remove it. we can never remove it. But the stunning offer here from God is that for those who accept it, for those who, down in verse 20, who don't resist and rebel, but those who in humility accept God's word, God offers to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He offers to take our sin-stained life and make it new, make it white as snow, to wash away every stain, every stain of sin. And imagine that, right? Every wrong thing you've ever done, every mistake, every dumb action, every selfish thought, every lie you've told, every mess you've made, completely cleansed, a fresh start, white as snow. Now the big question at this point in chapter 1 is how? How can God do this? Uh, How can this Holy One, how can this Holy God who is just and righteous and because of that must bring evil to an end how can he bring about this, this new transformation, this cleansing? How can he bring an end to evil and not also bring an end to those who are so stained by evil themselves? Well, it's one of the big questions of Isaiah. It's not answered in this, question, in this passage, and it's not really until much later in Isaiah that it gets filled out that there would come this suffering servant who would bear in his own death the sin of his people. Uh, But there is the people are transformed here. That's one ray of light shining through the darkness. But not only that, the city is transformed. Did you see that? Uh, God's, uh, God's judgment would come, but in verse 25 it would be a refining judgment. "'I will thoroughly purge away your dross "'and remove all your impurities. "'I will restore your leaders as in days of old, "'your rulers as at the beginning. "'Afterwards you will be called the city of righteousness.'" the faithful city. See this vision is a tale of two cities. Old rebellious Jerusalem being transformed into new faithful Zion. But this transformation it just keeps growing, it keeps expanding out. Uh, and when you get to chapter 2, uh, it's not just this city that's transformed but the whole world ends up being transformed. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2 looks forward to what Isaiah calls the last days. Uh, And this transformed Jerusalem with its temple, the vision that Isaiah sees is of it being this global city. Verse 2, this new Zion has all nations streaming to it, the whole world entering into a joyful relationship with the holy God, walking in His ways, living under His word, and you know, there's this beautiful vision of light and peace. Down in verse 4 there will be such harmony. Uh, no one's going to have any need for any weapons of any kind. right? So your swords and your spears will be totally useless. Uh, so you may as well beat them into plowshares and pruning hooks because everyone will be gardening. So gardeners rejoice. Uh, it's an incredible transformation. This, not just this one city, but the whole world transformed, brought into right relationship with God. Well, there's so much here. There's so much here. But I want to finish by showing how this great plan, focused on Jerusalem, involving real judgment, fierce judgment, but leading to transformation. I want to show you how Jesus comes and deliberately, self-consciously fulfills this plan. Uh, Right at the start of his his public ministry, Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth. You might uh, be familiar with this story. Uh, It's recorded in Luke chapter 4. And and he gets up in the synagogue to do a Bible reading. And he has this scroll handed to him and it just happens to be Isaiah. And he, he unrolls it. He finds a place to read from. He chooses this place. He reads from later on in Isaiah. But remember that this book is one vision. It's this one great plan of God. And he reads this out for all to hear. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant who's there. And you can picture the scene, right? You can hear a pin drop. He turns to face the congregation in this synagogue and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What a, what a incredible, stunning thing Jesus is claiming here. He's, he's saying that he's, he's here to fulfill this plan, uh, to bring about this incredible transformation but he's going to do it in the most unexpected way. Uh, you see, Jesus is uh, the perfect son of the Father. The one who never rebelled, never turned his back on his father. Who knew his father so intimately that he could say that I and the father are one. And yet this perfect son, so different to the, the children pictured in chapter 1. This perfect son ends up becoming the beaten up son of Chapter One, the beaten up children, wounds and bruises and open sores. So it's this totally unexpected way. It's it's Jesus and not Judah who is left desolate, who receives the full force of God's judgment on sin, who is hung up on a cross to die, he who knew no sin, became sin for us and in doing that he brought about the forgiveness and cleansing and transformation that is pictured here in Isaiah that's that's seen here in these first chapters and that is expanded on through the whole book Jesus would do what Israel failed to do he would be the true Israel who would bring God's blessing to all nations, to the whole world and the, the remarkable claim of Jesus is that in him, uh, these last days that are pictured in Isaiah chapter 2, these last days are already actually now here. Um, You see, in John's gospel, Jesus claims that he himself is the true temple, the true meeting place of God and man, where sin would be dealt with once and for all, the temple that was destroyed on the cross, but that rose again three days later, and now, now all nations are streaming not just, not to a physical place, not to a physical mountain, but to the one who has been established by God, highest over all, to Jesus, the risen Lord. And So friends, after Jesus, uh, we should not look to the physical city of Jerusalem. For Isaiah 2 to be fulfilled, it is already wonderfully, spectacularly fulfilled in a way that we could never imagine, that's so much more than we could ever imagine in Him. Right now, right across the world, all over the world, even all all over, uh, even all the way over to little old Victor Harbour, here. Right now, this is coming true today as people come to Jesus and are washed as white as snow and who live together in peace under his word." There is more to come from where, we're, from where we're standing, there is still more to come when what is true in Jesus becomes a total reality for all of creation. And you see that in the New Testament most clearly in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation where there's this uh, another stunning vision of this heavenly Zion in a new creation. But in Christ, in Christ this vision is already fulfilled, it's here. It's all been done even though we still wait for its final consummation. So friends, there's there's just so much to reflect on here. Uh, this new community of Isaiah chapter two. Uh, where we see in Jesus, which, which we see in Jesus, new people gathered around him. Uh, we see it in our church, this new Zion. It's a community where the peace of God and the word of God reign, where justice is upheld, where religious hypocrisy has no place, where a right concern for the truth is held together with a right concern for justice, and compassion and love. Um, there's so much here to reflect on, but across all of it, this opening of Isaiah, it, what it should do is it should lift our eyes to see the glory and wonder and bigness of what Jesus has done. And not only that, not just of what Jesus has done, but also of what you are swept up to, with, what you are swept up into. <laughs> If you are in Him, if your trust is in Him, in Christ you are brought into the heart of this great plan of God, this tale of two cities, this greatest story ever told. And this is just really helpful for us, I think, as we make our own plans, whatever they are, whatever level they are at, as we dream our own dreams, we know the fragility of our own plans, right? But if this is true, there is one vision, one dream, one plan uh, that can never be thwarted, that can never be undermined. That, and it helps us to see that when we're making our own plans, when we're dreaming our own vision it, 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 visions. It helps us to see, well, it, it, helps, it helps us to see on the one hand the, the futility and even the danger of setting up our life, dreaming our dreams, planning our plans in ways that go in opposition to this plan. That way, this way has no future. There's a danger of us setting up our own plans in opposition to the Great Plan. But more than that, what we have here is an opportunity actually, an incredible privilege, an invitation to come and walk in the light of the Lord and to line up our plans, our visions, with this plan, with God's vision. Uh, And we'll be able to do that in the confidence that Jesus is the risen Lord and that all nations are welcome to stream to him and find forgiveness and new life and in the confidence that this plan will never fail even if we forget to set the alarm, so let me pray for us, friends. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for your precious word to us. Give us humility to receive the reality and seriousness of sin and judgment. Uh, help us to see that, and and Lord, I pray that that might make us wonder and be thankful all the more for Jesus and the incredible transformation that you've brought about in Him and through Him. Lord, we thank you that in Him we are washed white as snow, that in Him we are part of this redeemed community, this new heavenly Zion. And Lord, we pray that all nations, people from every community, will stream to Jesus and enter into this life-giving relationship with you. And we ask that you might bring this about confident that this is your one great plan. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.